Do something that you're passionate about. The one thing, I mean, I've been in the banking business for 35 years, and I have never been more excited, more in love, more energy for what I'm doing than I am right now. Because for me, this isn't work, this is a passion. Growth Magic is a podcast exploring the techniques of exceptional leaders and how they weave together ingenuity, intent, and serendipity to realize big things. We invite storytellers from business, champions of impact, fast growth, entrepreneurs, and executives of major change to reveal their secrets and share their vision for the new world. I'm Hugh Evans. And I'm Liz Wise. And today we're joined by Joseph Healy, who's the co-founder and CEO of Judo Bank. Now, don't be surprised if that name rings a bell. Judo may be a relatively new challenger, but they're certainly capturing the attention and imagination of Australia's business and financial press. And it's no wonder. It's no small feat to design a bank from a blank sheet of paper. Yeah, Judo Bank raised $510 million in, in 2020, and uh, which saw its valuation soar past $1.6 billion, making you uh, one of Australia's rare business unicorns uh, in recent times. So uh, congratulations on that. That's a huge huge result. Um, and uh, I understand you're uh, heading for IPO. Well, we're, we're planning to look at the IPO market because we, we raised some additional equity uh, in June, um, just a few weeks ago, uh, which valued the company at $1.9 billion. And as we're a capital intensive, banking is a capital intensive business. And as we, we kind of look over the next 18 months and our growth plans, we, you know, we're going to need more capital, and w- the view is that we should consider the public equity market. No final decision made, but that's certainly how we're thinking. Can you tell us what Judo is? Who, who does it serve? Well, Judo is a specialist SME, small to mid-sized business bank. Um, we describe ourselves as a challenger bank, not a fintech or a neobank. But a challenger bank, and, and we, we define a challenger bank as a bank that comes into the market to challenge the status quo by a mix of traditional banking values, like, like the centrality of relationship, the centrality of human contact, uh, but built on a modern technology platform. So it's a, it's a high-touch, high-tech model. Um, and we, we, you know, we, we came about because we felt that the SME economy, and, and by, way, by the way, we're describing SMEs as businesses with a turnover of up to $100 million, so from the, you know, a very small business up to a substantial business, um, we felt that they were largely being underserved by the large banks. Uh, the banking system had largely taken these small to mid-sized businesses for granted, uh, and there, were not, there weren't many options for businesses that were dissatisfied with their existing relationship. I mean, the reality is that when you look at the four major banks which dominate the banking system here in Australia with 85% market share, they have different brand names, but beneath those brand names are entities that are very similar in nature. Yeah, this this has been my experience as well. Um, we, we are an SME and yeah. we are, we're also looking for um, finance from time to time. And, and having read your book and understood the the essentially what reads as a manifesto about what the Australian banking system needs to rebalance lending to SMEs, it really, really resonated with me and my experience. Um, I, I, I think uh, it would be really useful to, act, to 
everybody's going to want to understand how do you create a unicorn from a PowerPoint slide yep. in four years' time. Um, and maybe if we could go back to that uh, creator story, so that, 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 that moment in time when you and Dave, David Hornery decided that you are going to embark on this challenge. Um, take us back there. What, what happened? Well, David and I used to catch up um, at a bar on a Friday night. We worked together for a number of years. And on a Friday night, we said, let's catch up and have a download on the week before we headed off to, for the weekend. And we found ourselves increasingly talking about how frustrating it was uh, in trying to provide the kind of banking services that small to mid-sized businesses need and deserve. Frustrating because the systems that work inside these large banks made it very difficult for people. And, and incidentally, I was a senior executive running the biggest business bank in the country at that time. But it was difficult to try and get the organization to do what the SME economy wanted it to do. And there's a whole range of complex reasons for that. And people who have operated inside big businesses will understand them. So, but we felt that we were spending a lot of time reflecting on what was not working well rather than celebrating what was working well. And we took the view that there had to be a better way. Now, both of us were quite advanced in our careers. We were both 30 odd years in the industry uh, and had done well. We were both successful in our careers. Um, but we felt that given our passion for, for small to mid-sized businesses and our passion for banking, despite you know, the criticisms that many people have of the banking system, we were deeply passionate about the purpose and importance of a banking system to an economy, particularly to small to mid-sized businesses, that we started talking about, well, why don't we build a bank? Now, at that time, this was in late 2015, early 2016, at that time, there hadn't really been a new bank in Australia, a newly licensed bank for about 50 years. So this was not a path that was well trodden. But we felt that given what we'd seen happen in the UK, because there had been an emergence of challenger banks there in 2007, 2008, post the GFC, that there was, a, there was an opportunity to study how these banks emerged and then see if we could develop the same blueprint or an Australian blueprint uh, to launch an SME bank here. Now, we started talking, probably talked about it for six to seven months. Uh, and then in early 2016, we started getting serious about you know, thinking it, taking it from a concept on a PowerPoint into what would the business look like. So what happens when you get serious? Who do you invite into that, that process and how do you kick it into gear? Well, you, you talk to people that you trust and know and, and people who understand these things, but both onshore and offshore. Uh, you learn the lessons from what, you know, when we went to the UK, we spent, we went to the UK three or four times in two, late 15, early 16 to talk to some of these new challenger banks and investors in those challenger banks. We said, "What did you learn? What, what, if you were doing it again, what would you, uh, what would you avoid doing, and what, what insights could you give us?" So we just soaked all of the information up. But we also then thought about the, you know, the vision for the bank because we, it's very important when you build any new business to start with the end in mind. To use the kind of Stephen Covey advice, start with the end in mind. What does this? business look like in five and ten years time uh, and and make sure and, and, and make sure that the vision that you have for the business is one that's exciting 
that is relevant to the economy, that you're actually building a business that's not that's going to provide something that the economy doesn't have today, that it's anchored in purpose, uh, really, really important. Now, this is a really, I think this is a really important thing to, to drill in on. Um, it seemed to me from from understanding the the, the judo story and the, the the philosophy that sits underneath it that the behaviours in banking over the last twenty years and the financialization of the of the banking sector um, has understandably in some respects led to this sort of competitive gamesmanship about how much can banks profit and 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 draw from the market within the rules of the game that that, that the government allows them yeah. you know, in, in terms of how the government allows them to operate. Um, but it seems that, that the, the, the idea of purpose and actually having an organisation that is committed to its social contract and committed to the idea of uh, actually enabling small to medium enterprise to uh, realise their potential through access to the right amount of capital to, to, to deliver that um, is, is, a, is a, an incredibly valid um, purpose. Um, how do you connect that with your team? How do you actually unlock that and how do you make sure that that shapes behaviour? within your team? Well, you know, the, and you, you, you touched on it when you talked about social or social license. I mean, banks are really unique institutions and any, and any economy. If you think about the, when you, when you're issued a banking license, you, you're placed in a highly privileged position. The first thing that happens is that you can access people's deposits and the government or the taxpayer guarantees those deposits up to $250,000 per deposit. So you have ability to access a lot of ca cash with a government guarantee behind it. The second thing is that, particularly if you're a large bank, if you get into difficulty, history shows that the taxpayer comes in and rescues you. And in Australia, the third thing is, if you're a large bank, you're protected from takeover. So you, this is quite unique in any industry. And it therefore makes the whole emphasis or concept of social license really important. Banks are privileged institutions and they should conduct themselves respecting that privilege. Now, the reality is that the banking industry lost sight of social license and saw itself as um, profit maximizing actors. So we're like any other private company and our goal is to maximize profits uh, and, and therefore, and that, therefore, that's how we should operate. And that then resulted in a set of behaviours that the Royal Commission, I think, uh, clearly illustrated, but also a huge disconnect from society or from the economy, and particularly true of small to mid-sized businesses. They felt left behind by the banking system. So back to the question around when we were building Juro, we said, let's, not, let's make sure that we avoid all of the issues, the reputational issues, that have scarred the industry, marred and scarred the industry over the last decade. And let's build a business that is anchored in a strong sense of purpose. And, I, and the, our purpose is to be Australia's most trusted SME business bank. It's clear, it's powerful, and everything that we do inside the bank, when we think about strategy, it's anchored in that purpose. And so when people join the bank, you know, we talk a lot about purpose and values. What, what are the values that support that purpose? Because they help shape the culture. Uh, and then now, a lot of people coming from large institutions will have read mission statements and value statements and purpose statements and instantly forgotten them. Uh, whereas here, as part of the way that we hire people and then we induct 
people into the into the culture of the organization, we emphasize the importance of purpose. That this that for Juno to succeed in a market dominated by giants, it has to differentiate itself. And the one way that you differentiate yourself is by having a strong sense of purpose that you that you absolutely are accountable for. That, that, that what you say is what you do. Uh, and inside the company and outside the company. And, you know, the number of times that we have discussions inside the company about, about strategic o- options, I would say, hey, hold on a second. How does that relate to our purpose? And that quite often finishes the conversation. Judo harnesses a lot of the traditional values of relationship banking, but is also focused on um, being an innovator and, and being technology enabled. Um, how do you actually bring those two together in judo? Well, that's a wonderful uh, question because um, we, again, going back to the purpose that judo serves in the economy, we felt that SMEs had really been poorly served. I mean, that was not just a view that we held. I think that's a statement of fact. If you look at any survey, and there are numerous surveys, uh, dissatisfaction that SMEs had with the banking system is legend. So we felt that if we were going to be successful, relevant and successful on a sustainable basis, we needed to have an organization that was connected with our customers, defined by that sense of purpose. Um, and but we felt also that, to use economic jargon, that one of the big problems that SMEs face in dealing with banks is they are what economists call, it's a sector that is information inefficient. And if you look at the consumer sector, you can get lots of information on people like you and I. If you look at large corporates, there's lots of information you can get. But the SME economy generally is, is incomplete information. And the way that the banks deal with that incomplete information is saying, well, okay, we'll lend to you if you can offer us up some property. So we'll lend you 75% of your value of the property. And that avoids all of the complexity of trying to work out whether you're a good customer or not. But that then meant that there had been a market failure, again, to use some jargon, uh, that this banking system wasn't really meeting the needs of the SME economy. And that banking failure is in the order of $100 billion. So we felt that we're building an organization that we were going to drive into that big gap. But to do that, we needed to have, because of this information inefficiency idea, we needed to have bankers who were capable of exercising judgment were passionate about small to mid-sized businesses, deeply skilled in, in the craft of banking, um, but, the, but they were enabled by modern technology so that they were able to spend 80% of their time thinking about and working with customers and not getting dragged into the complexity and bureaucracy of antiquated legacy systems, antiquated legacy infrastructure assets, legacy technology, legacy policies and procedures. So the key for us was a modern, cutting-edge technology-enabled business model, but with a strong human face, where bankers would actually jump in their car and go visit the customer with with their colleagues from risk management. Um, And we could do that efficiently because the operating platform was absent all of the legacy that I just described. So that's that's the model. I mean, you might say, well, there's no silver bullets or rocket science about that which is true, but actually doing this well uh, is, is something that you should be working at. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, tension as well, uh, the, the sort of algorithm-based business model of banking where you, you um, either are or aren't a, an attractive client 
and you don't necessarily have the discretion of the relationship banker to determine what are the nuances around this, this circumstance of this individual um, and, and, and how that industrialisation has cut out a lot of, a lot of customers. Uh, but then we, on the other hand, we also have um, the, the emergence of these technologies that enable better decision making. So um, we often look at this in, the, in terms of um, becoming a, a pilot of the technology, like yeah. a pilot of AI rather than being replaced by AI. Yeah. And how can you actually harness those insights to make better decisions while still enhancing that, that customer experience and brilliant. the outcome? Yeah, brilliant. Your um, uh, focus on customer must come with a, a very deliberate focus on customer journey and, yeah. and touch points and experience, yeah. uh, as well as um, what's happening on the inside, uh, on, on the employee side. Um, is, uh, do, do you have a function in your organisation that focuses on that? Or how, how do you develop that capability um, to, to sort of design those experiences internally and externally um, uh, uh, for your customers? Well, I mean, this is, this is a journey rather than a destination because you're constantly working at that. And, yeah. and, the, and the role that technology plays is critical. I mean, I, I, whilst we're always going to be a human-facing face, organisation, I liken our business model to... If you were thinking about the, an airplane flight from Melbourne to Los Angeles, which is like call it 12 hours, the, the human expertise is in the first hour of getting the plane off the ground up to altitude. And then the last hour in safely landing in LA, the 10 hours in between, technology should do that for you, you know? And so that's how we think about uh, the application of technology and, and human judgment. We don't see technology ever replacing human judgment, but we, we see technology making human judgment much more efficient. We also see technology being able to provide insights for our customers because we'll, we'll have lots of data. There's lots of data on the market, let's say, in how what the what best in market performance of a hotel might be or a, a gym or, or any business model and providing these insights to our customers and saying, look, this is what we see is the best in market in your business. Uh, th you, this is what you look like, and here are the opportunities to improve your performance. So, really, adding value back through through data analytics um, and making and giving customers the option of when they want to be technology engaged with you. In other words, online banking, and when they want to pick up the phone and speak to a banker. Most businesses, every two or three years, will have something they want to talk to somebody about. You know, it could be buying something, it could be selling something, it could be investing in something. And they want, they want to speak to somebody who they can just brainstorm and somebody who's going to exercise judgment, not formulas. Mm -hmm. And he's going to say, well, yes, I think you could do this. We could help you with that. But this is, you should also think about this. Now, that's not, these discussions don't occur every day. And sometimes I say it can be every two or three years. But businesses do need a banker to speak to. The reality, unfortunately, is that those bankers have been taken away from the customer engagements and a lot of small to mid-sized businesses have been given a call centre number. You know, if you need any help, here's the number. And the person you speak to is going to be some random individual who has no feeling for you, no emotional connection for you. And that's we're, we're, tight, we're swimming against a tide that we say, sure, it might be a bit more expensive to have bankers out speaking to customers, if you think like an accountant, you know, but the problem is with too many businesses is they focus on what can be counted and they lose sight of what really counts. And we focus on what counts because if you do that really well, 
what is counted, such as your expenses, your revenues, and they look after themselves. So it's a different paradigm. Um, and, and, and by using technology the way I described it, you can scale the business. So you, we've got 300-odd staff today. We've got aspirations to have that at double the number of people in 18 months' time. Uh, and we want to be a significantly bigger bank than we are in three years' time. Technology is going to be the key to that. That's, that's where I wanted to go next. The, uh, you mentioned before this is a journey, and um, you know, you're looking at the, at the at potential IPO sh- shortly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've gone through enormous growth to get to where you are from a blank sheet to 300 people in four years, yep. and you've got this um, uh, potential hockey stick in front of you in, in the growth ahead. Yeah. And uh, in doing that, uh, traditional banking is, is notoriously known for the, the history of um, you know, more command and control st- yep. style structures. Um, and breaking down the challenge of breaking down silos yeah. uh, that come as a consequence of those structures. And a bunch of these uh, banks have now moved to modern ways of working, um, looking at collaboration through sort of more agile approaches. Um, and a lot of them have gone completely uh, to, to, the, to the view that they see themselves as a technology company rather yeah. than perhaps a, a, a bank. Yeah. Um, and I know you've said a lot about that in your book, <laughs> Breaking the Banks. We won't get into that per se, but I'm interested in your outlook you're growing at a bank. You are on a mercurial rise. Um, you're at this stage of the journey. But as you look at modern ways of working and some of this thinking out in the market about how structure works inside the bank yeah. that you're building, um, what, what do you think about? How do you approach that? Well, we're certainly not a technology company. We're a bank, unashamedly so. Um, an SME-focused bank. We always, we'll always be a specialist bank. But as we've talked about earlier, technology is going to be critical to the way that enables a great service. We are a cloud-based bank, which means that we can go into the question of agility, that we can stay current with with technology evolution. Um, We see, as I mentioned earlier, that technology is going to be critical to our analytical understanding of our customer and our ability not just to have data analytics that serve the needs of how we run the bank, but also add value to our customers. We've got to have people, you know, that we we hire most of our staff. And actually, this is one of the big challenges. So we're a new company with a very uh, unique, I think, approach to the way that we think about banking SMEs. But we're hiring people largely from major institutions who steeped in the culture of those institutions. And so when you bring people into the organization, you know, almost detoxing them from the 10, 15, 20 years that they had spent at one of the major banks and saying, like, you've learned a lot there and we've hired you because of your passion and expertise, but you have to learn the judo way of doing things. What it is we stand for, the purpose that we have, the way we think about our customers, the way that we think about long-term. Now, one of the things, the problems that has plagued the industry has been the high turnover of staff I, mean, I, I have a personal example of this. I won't mention the bank, but my private banker emailed me uh, last week to advise me that she has been promoted and she's heading off to another job inside the organization, which is fantastic for her. But she was the fourth private banker I had in two years. And I'm, I'm about to get a new one whose name she couldn't tell me at the time. Now, you can't build relationships when there's such a high turnover of people. You need people to say, I'm passionate about relationships. I'm passionate about growing our business and our customers' business. 
and I'm passionate about investing my career in doing that. Now, that that's part of the culture here. Rather, and rather than saying, I'm going to join this company and in six months' time, I want to start climbing some hierarchy. We want to keep this organization flat. We want to have 70% of the people that work inside this business touching the customer. Now, that compares to less than 20% of the people that work inside large larger banks that actually touch the customer. So these are going to be, these are going to be important quantitative and qualitative measures that we focus in on as the business is evolving and making sure, really importantly, that we're not sleepwalking because this is the biggest nightmare that I, I have is waking up in two years' time, looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, my God, judo is a mini-me of every banks. We've sleptwalked into that, right? So the challenge that I and my colleagues have is making sure that we're constantly uh, vigilant as to how the culture inside the organization is evolving, how the bureaucracy in the organization is evolving, which is really important. I mean, this is an industry plagued by bureaucracy. As a bank, you have to have some bureaucracy, but I liken it to cholesterol in the body. There's good cholesterol and there's bad cholesterol. The truth is inside many of these large institutions, the arteries are clogged up with bad cholesterol, mindless bureaucracy, lack of agility, lack of decisiveness, lack of empowerment, the system controls the relationship with the customer rather than the individuals that are part of the system. Uh, we want to make sure that doesn't happen inside this company. Really important. We, we talk about uh, the uh, brand experience or the experience execution loop, which is what goes on inside the organisation must be consistent with the promise outside the organisation. And um, it's really important to get the symmetry of that uh, experiencing uh, uh, that experience happening. If If... As, as a potential customer of Judo Bank and, and my colleagues, other CEOs in the, in the sort of sub-100 one, million revenue space, uh, if I'm to think in my mind's eye about Judo as, as my potential banker, what is the unique thing or, or the, the value proposition that really lands for us? Like, what should we be thinking about when we think of your bank? Well, you'll be speaking to a banker who is passionate about this business. It's, it's all we do, SME banking. You'll be speaking to an organization or to the banker who will say that the organization differentiates itself on its speed of decision-making. So that we say that if we can't do something with a customer uh, because it doesn't fit our risk appetite, we will tell the customer really, really quickly. We won't string them along. Getting to yes, our, our commitment is to get to yes in five days. That, now, inside a lot of big banks, that can be like five months, right? Uh, so, we are, so, so it's the ability to make quick decisions. It's the ability to have bankers who are empowered, in some cases, to make those decisions. Uh, and, and ability to be competitive and, and to, to almost customize or, in a bespoke manner, develop a solution. Rather than saying, look, here's the product, take it or leave it. Or here's what the machine said, take it or leave it. So what percentage, if I can ask, of your loan book would be backed by property? About 70 to 75%. But that's the, the, I mean, the, the way that we think about lending money to customers based on what we call the four Cs, and this is a religious belief inside this company. The first C is the character, track record, reputation of the business owner, the entrepreneur. The second C is the cash capacity or the cash flow in the business to service and repay the debt. The third C is the capital or the equity capital that sits in the balance, on the balance sheet to support the debt. 
And then the fourth C is collateral. What sort of security is available in the event that there's a weakness in, in one of the first three Cs? Now, you might say, well, there's nothing particularly uh, magic about that approach. But the reality is that is unique in the industry because the, what the banking industry does, it goes straight to the fourth C and says, how much collateral or security have you got? And I'll lend you up against a certain limit. Now, my philosophy or our philosophy is that if your character is question, questionable based on your track record and reputation, then it doesn't matter how much collateral you've got. You simply won't lend money to people that you can't trust. Now, that's a really important principle. And, and so we train our bankers in, this, in the four C's um, of credit. And when we talk about businesses inside the company, it, that's the hierarchy. We'll get to collateral when we get there, but we first of all want to know who are these people, what have they done, what is their track record, do they know what they're doing, you know, and then let's talk about the balance sheet, um, and then let's talk about a P&L rather, and then let's talk about the balance sheet, and then let's look at security. Okay, I want to talk about two potential disruptors, and one um, is foreshadowed, I think, in some respects in, in, in your book. Uh, the... It seems that the entire banking system is is banking on asset inflation um, over the over the years ahead, um, whereby we have essentially a um, property backed uh, finance market, mm -hmm. and um, and that with an enormous amount of stimulus coming into the economy, uh, the printing of money. It's probably fair to assume if you're in one of the big four that that's going to continue for a period, and we're seeing that right now down on you know in the property prices. Uh, around Australia. Uh, however, most most of us would believe that that can't go on forever mm -hmm. and that something need will eventually need to change to re rebalance the economics mm -hmm. of that of that situation. Um, are you concerned about that that situation and how does judo view that that mm -hmm. uh, type of uh, systemic or market risk? Well, this is a big question. I mean, the short answer is yes, concerned about it because the the a level of debt in the household sector, which is largely in residential mortgage lending, is one of the highest in the world. I mean, uh, the, the household debt level in Australia is around about $1.8 trillion. Now, that compares to about $400 billion into SMEs, right? So that's that's a huge imbalance. And And by the way, if you go back 20 years ago, it was largely a dollar for business, half of which went to SMEs, and a dollar for household. Uh, and that today is now a dollar for household, and it's 30 cents for business. So it's been a huge shift, structural shift in the industry that dates back to Basel II. Um, now, whilst higher house prices makes house owners, including you know most people, but not everybody, feel good about their wealth, it also disguises the fact that higher valuations will result in higher levels of debt. And the idea that we're going to be the only econ major economy in the world to never have a housing correction uh, is a pretty big risk to take. It's a big punt, I would describe it as. It's a big punt. The interest rates are very low today, but they're not always going to be very low. They're going to start climbing in two or three years' time. That's what the market indicators are telling us. And so... Is it prudent for the banking system to be pushing so much debt into the household sector and, and as not driving up house prices? As a banker, when you get off the dance floor and go onto the balcony and look down, you say, no, this, the level of systemic risk here is huge. 
and um, and uh, it's a concern. How does Judo think about it? Well, you know, obviously we talk about it publicly. We've been quite vocal in terms of our public comments and media around our concern about household debt uh, and the need for regulators to take a much closer look at what's happening. Um, we also, you know, are particularly careful about which sectors of the economy that we find us where, where, how much lending we have into. So for, we'll be a lot more cautious, for example, on uh, certain types of commercial property at this at this stage in the cycle. Mm. Uh, we're very conscious that most SME, small mid-sized business owners may own not just their own residence, but several investment properties because that's just part of the psyche in this market. Uh, we take that into account when we look at lending you know, so because you've got to be, these things can be connected. There's a so-called contagion risk of something goes wrong here, it can flow over into over here. Uh, so you keep an eye on it, but we're not we're not people that that put our heads in the sand and say, well, everybody's going to always want to buy a house, and therefore housing is always going to go up. Uh, to do that, to my mind, is hugely naive, and it is taking a huge punt and and serious responsible bankers should be expressing concerns about these issues. Yeah, and, and what you're saying excites me because the um, I really feel that they're in Australia, having seen what I've seen in, in, in other markets, um, we have this myopia which undermines the innovation potential of our um, small to medium, medium enterprise. And we don't get the, the leverage on that innovation potential um, within, within the Australian community. And you also see it in the venture capital markets to some extent uh, as well. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'd love to see that turn around because I think there's incredibly bright people in our country who have enormous potential that could be uh, accelerated quite substantially with the right type of policy around that. Now, the other area I wanted to touch on from a disruption perspective yeah. is um, uh, things like DeFi and understanding that we are entering a new world with, uh, in terms of technology. Yeah. And, um, and the, the buyer might actually, if they have access to it, move to different types of funding models like peer-to-peer, -peer, yeah. um, uh, blockchain-based lending. Yeah. And um, you know, these, these uh, op propositions aren't exactly clear to everybody just yet, mm -hmm. um, but they might land in our pockets uh, or on our laps very quickly, and we may need to respond to that. Is, uh, do you have any opinions on, on, on your views of the development? of, uh, of uh, distributed finance and, and, and the development of technology in that area? Yeah, well, I, 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 I personally believe it's a good thing because I think the more innovation that we see and the more options that businesses have in accessing finance, the better. The flip side of that is that banks operate in quite a regulated market, you know, and so we know, we know what's happening in the banking system. We don't know what's so much about what's happening outside the banking system in the so-called shadow system, if you will, the unregulated system. But we know it's growing. Uh, you, you only have to look at you know, the buy, buy now, pay later segments and, and then all the other segments, such, such as the ones you touched on. And they're getting bigger and bigger. But we're all part of the same system, if you will. Uh, and so... Excessive amounts of growth in credit and the unregulated market has implications for the regulated market. So my, my only caution is to make sure that we're not we're not seeing growth outside the regulated market that could impact the whole system. But that is not to say that we shouldn't have a lot more innovation, that businesses have a choice, and that businesses can't access the capital that they need 
let's say, through the banking system, that there are alternatives for them. I do feel that the banking system has to be a lot more in tune with the asset light economy that we are in. It doesn't serve that economy at all well today. Venture capital has a role to play, but it's not. It, it, it has a quite a narrow role to play, and it's not attractive to all business owners. So I think there is a need for a lot more innovation in finance. Uh, we will have a, a role to play as a, as a bank. Again, we going back to my kind of hierarchy around the four Cs. We're looking at character and capacity before we get to collateral. We understand that if you if you if you have a, an entrepreneur who's been successful over the last decade and he or she wants to come and start a new business, you're not looking at a startup really. You're looking what you should be looking at is the individual who's actually demonstrated his or her capacity to build a business. And that's where you should start. And that's why this character reference that I made is so important. So, you know, we, we are very much in tune with that. We support innovation. Again, getting off the dance floor onto the balcony, we also concern ourselves that there's a lot happening in the unregulated market that will impact the economy if something goes wrong there. And, and it's important that there is a system-wide view on what's happening. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we, we certainly see... Uh, a, a, an enormous shift to anything or everything as a service, you know, in, in commercial and, and uh, consumer uh, uh, sectors. You know, people are less concerned with owning things, more concerned with what they consume and what they, what they can, can, can experience uh, as a consumer. So uh, very interesting to hear where you're coming from and um, hats off for the, for the success in Judo Bank. It's actually quite inspirational and... Uh, you know, perhaps we'll be a customer one day. I'm really looking forward to seeing, <laughs> seeing where you're going. Good. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Joseph. Pleasure. Thank you, Joseph. It's been a pleasure. And thanks also to our host, Hugh Evans, and to Michael Rushworth, our sound engineer. Please do stay in touch by subscribing at growthmagic.fm. In our next podcast, we'll be joined by Jo Burston. She's the founder and CEO of Job Capital, co-founder and director of Frenesis Academy, and founder of the entrepreneurial movement Inspiring Rare Birds. Until then, stay safe.